Housebroken Clothing and ClassicSciFi.com have joined forces to present the ultimate in classic science fiction-inspired apparel. All shirts are hand-printed here in the USA. Everyone loves the luxurious feel of these shirts. The prints are lightweight with soft inks, making them the perfect combination of style and comfort. Each shirt is unique and meticulously cared for during production. They are then inspected, approved, and signed by the artist himself. All this, plus free shipping. They've got Frankenstein shirts, Night of the Living Dead shirts, UFO shirts, all sorts of shirts. They're great shirts. Check out the shirts today at ClassicSciFi.com. Hello and welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Hi. And Jenna Ipkar. Hi, 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 Mr. Deltoid. And today's topic is kind of a convoluted one. It's kind of a double topic. First, we're going to tackle movies that we like by directors that we typically dislike. And then we're going to conquer uh, movies we dislike by directors we usually like. So, kind of a double-edged, dialectic, uh, mirror topic. Right, guys? Yeah, mirrors. Did I use the word dialectic correctly? I think he did. Wow. Alright, so, I think the first one that really comes to mind for me, we could tackle that right off the bat, is Spring Breakers. Because for the longest time, I was not a Harmony Korine guy, or Korean, rather, Never liked Gummo, Kids, Ken Park, Jillian Donkey Boy, whatever the other ones are, if there are other ones, uh, Mr. Lonely. He just never, I always thought of him as like this kind of fake filmmaker. Like I never really took him seriously. The only work that I liked that he ever did up until Spring Breakers was his appearances on Letterman. If you go on YouTube and you look at those, those are fucking hilarious. Like he's just taking the piss and Letterman is enjoying it too. And it's just these great little classic kind of Letterman-ish interviews. Um, So that was all I really liked of him. And I didn't expect much from Spring Breakers, but I fucking love the hell of that movie. I think it it works perfectly. I think the editing is what makes it really sing. The problem I had with a lot of his other work, well, basically all of his other work, was that the editing, I just couldn't follow it. It just didn't flow in the way that I guess it flows for him when he looks at them. I know you're a big fan of that one too, John. Yeah, I really don't have a strong opinion on any of his other films. I, I like um, I like Julian Donkey Boy because I like Herzog in it. Right. I think that's a great little performance. <laughs> but like as a movie, it's fine. They're all fine. Spring Breakers really does feel like a big jump. Not even just for him, just for um, that level of mid low budget filmmaking. I mean, it really, it was so ambitious visually in a yeah. way that I don't think any of his others quite were. And it looked great. I mean, I didn't see the movie. I saw the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> How was Which, the trailer? The trailer looked at it very, um, you know, I did, I kind of avoided it because I thought it was going to be the sort of aesthetic that I just don't like that, you know, TMZ Perez Hilton, which I think is really what he's lampooning potentially. But, um, I don't know. There's something about it that just kind of turned me off. But in retrospect, I kind of feel like I missed out. I had that reaction initially to the trailer and the, the spots for it. And I didn't I didn't know what to anticipate. I, I remember the earlier reviews I saw. 
people were complaining that like it didn't make sense. So I just assumed like, oh, that's just a marketing campaign and it relates just another Harmony Corinne movie. It's just all over the place. Then I saw it and I was like, this flows immaculately well. This is just like expert filmmaking on a level that I didn't expect from him. It's structured the way Malick structures stuff at his best, where Mm -hmm. the editing isn't linear, but it's sort of driven by the emotional core of the scene, which is something Corinne's always had trouble with before. There's really no strong emotional core to his movies, I think, before this one. And the, the thing about Spring Breakers that was really cool was I don't think where like Bling Ring was terrible and Spring Breakers was good was Bling Ring was trying to be a parody of that kind of lifestyle. Spring Breakers wasn't. I think Spring Breakers was um, an equal parts parody and celebration of it. It sort of like just lived in that lavish, rotting, pre- fall kind of a new money lifestyle it actually reminded me of um fitzgerald the way he was in the kind of new money pre-depression lifestyle and criticizing it at the same time i disagree about bling ring though because bling ring like they shot in paris hilton's house i mean with sophia coppola who herself is essentially the same kind of person these kids were originally stealing from all these sort of hollywood people they brought in I mean, that was actually a movie from... I don't really like Sofia Coppola at all, and I thought that was actually an interesting movie. Maybe not great, but kind of got its point across. But again, I didn't see this one. I could barely finish Bling Ring because um, my trouble with Sofia Coppola is I think she's pretty good, but maybe it's just because of who she is. When she's working with an actor who isn't like top 5% best in the world, doesn't really need directing, she can't direct an actor. I thought the performances from everybody other than Watson were just dead in the water. And it felt like they were flailing for somebody to direct. Well, she really, I thought that she really treated the the female characters super unfairly in that movie, which I think I even wrote a little thing on Smug about that, you know, it was about these main characters are all female. And yet the, the only sympathetic character and the only one with any depth is the one male character in that entire movie, which I thought was a bummer. Sofia Coppola, I think the only one I like is Lost in Translation. I don't really like her other stuff. I didn't really care about Virgin Suicide somewhere or uh, whatever the other ones are. Marie Antoinette. Yeah, she's uh, yeah, something really worked in Lost in Translation that I, I don't even know if I could quantify what worked about that movie. I think if I could describe it technically, I think the sound design on that movie was immaculate. I remember I, I read some trivia thing on like IMDb. Where like all the sounds when she's in like the arcade and she's walking around like all the arcade machines, all the sound in there was put in afterwards. And you watch that scene and it's so it just works so well. And you realize how much sound design went into making it work that well. And I think it's just uh, the sound of that movie is just incredible. I think that's what really worked for me with that one. All right. Sound design leads me to my pick for this topic. Yeah. Eight and a half, which is sort of a controversial one. That's the, that's the Fellini that works for you? You yeah. don't like Fellini? I think Fellini was incredibly talented, and I'm glad there is a Fellini out there. I have never wanted to watch a Fellini movie again, except for Eight and a Half. Huh. Eight and a Half is the only one. And you know what it is? It's so good. And I saw it, I think it was like 13, 14 when I saw it. It was about the first Italian movie I've ever seen. It was so good that it's, its spectre sort of hangs over all of Italian film for me. And I've been vaguely disappointed by that whole golden era of Italian cinema because none of them have been as good as Eight and a Half to me. 
Wow. And a lot of it is um, that sort of distancing effect you get from those films because all the sound was done ADR. I think eight and a half is one of the only times it works for me. That distance really feels appropriate and it feels earned. I love eight and a half. I think it's, I think it's if anything better than, than most people give it credit for, but no other Fellini films have really captured me. La Strada came the closest, but even that one, it just, the, the, the pacing of them is always off to me. The pacing mm. of Italian film in general, I have trouble with. It feels languid to me. And it always feels like just the, the structure of storytelling in Italian cinema to me feels um, too loose. But in Eight and a Half, it works because you have all these scenes that have their own climaxes. Whereas in a lot of other movies, you don't get... A lot of other movies, you get these sort of um, long scenes to nowhere... And then at the very end of it, you get a climax, and it just it, it feels meandering. Oh, I was about to say, have you seen Juliet of the Spirits? But it absolutely does what you just described. Yeah, I love and Juliet it's, of the it's Spirits. good. Like I don't, I don't think Eight and a Half is the only good Golden Age Italian movie. But to me, it's the only one that's really like bulletproof, top tier, as good as it gets filmmaking. A lot of the other ones leave me just wishing there was a tighter hand somewhere in the. I agree with that. I mean, well, eight and a half. I mean, but I like Fellini, but eight and a half is definitely is my favorite of his. Yeah, I don't. I don't like eight and a half. I don't like Fellini. Really? No. What uh, don't you like about eight and a half? Eight and a half. Um, if I could like quantify what turned me off about it, my my feeling of it was that it just bored the shit out of me. But if I were to, you know, actually have an opinion <laughs> beyond that, it would be that. It felt like he was playing around with something. I didn't feel like he found what he was looking for, what what he was trying to express with that movie. And that's something that that repels me from movies generally. I like I like the filmmaker to finally figure out what he was going for, and I just didn't get that vibe from Eight and a Half. You don't think the end scene did that? I think it's one of the best endings ever. I also think um Tree of Life was sabotaged by the fact that it tried to do the eight and a half ending, but didn't have eight and a half's impeccable sense of timing. Tree of Life, the middle chunk of that movie is just perfection. And the beginning and the end of that, I can't deal with. It's just, it just well, doesn't work. The ending is, I think it's essentially an adaptation of the ending of eight and a half, but it doesn't work. I don't, I don't think it works the way eight and a half does because eight and a half, it's just this this beautiful, strange moment that's perfectly logical. You know, of course, everybody he knew would come to a circus and he would just experience all that again. It works so well in the film and in the context of Fellini's career. It's just so many images he was struggling with coming to fruition at the same time. Whereas Tree of Life, it felt um, it felt like you got what he was trying to do in two minutes and then it lingered for 45 minutes mm. just to... I don't even know why, frankly, just to just to be there. Yeah, I think he couldn't bear to cut a lot of stuff in that movie. And he even says that he wants to do like a six hour, an eight hour. Like he wants to just keep upping that cut of that movie. Malik says about Tree of Life. Um, Fellini with eight and a half. I adore uh, Woody Allen's movie Stardust Memories. And I feel like it hit a lot of the stuff in eight and a half, but in a more fun way that I kind of I understood a little bit better. Like there wasn't that as much distance where I was trying to catch up to what was going on in Fellini's head. Like Stardust is just like turn that movie on. The moment he starts 
with his little surreal sequences. I'm on board fully. I get him fully. Well, that um, one starts with less cultural distance for you. Exactly. And that was made exactly. 10 blocks away from you. Yeah. That's, uh, and that's a, that's a big part of it. I think a lot of the distance I have with Fellini and also probably Godard. The only Godard movie I like is Breathless. And anything else by him, it just doesn't, I can't connect with. Because it feels like it's the only movie Godard ever made, as yeah. opposed to film essays, which I can't, I can't deal with them. Him, when it gets into those essay movies and um Straub Hulot when they would do it too it just it's it's ridiculous to me because Godard in particular knows so well the strengths of film as a medium and he would go on these tears through the 60s and even now he does it where he would just completely disregard all that and make a research paper mm-hmm. as a movie I think masculine feminine and alphaville those felt like research papers to me whereas alphaville uh, big time parole yeah. of foo doesn't and uh, a woman is a woman never did I, I love both of those movies i think that they're very cute i mean they're not like deep they could be actually parole of foo gets a bit deeper um the sort of romanticism versus existentialism theme that he's going on which i guess could be an essay but i thought that was a more charming film it, it's charming but it gets a little all over the place towards like the middle I, w- I was with it at the start, and then it just got a little too... There are too many jumps. But it goes for, surrealist enough by the end that, that it it get, it like sort of wins me back over. I love the ending. I love him painting himself blue and then strapping the dynamite. I, that's like that's a great ending to that movie. I understand yeah. that, yeah. That that whole ending in, in, in that film, it reminded me a bit of... Um, oh, man. Is it Trust that it reminded me of? That, the Hal Hartley one? Yeah, it doesn't have that similar thing with like a grenade or something. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And I liked it. I liked how it worked a lot better in Trust. I liked the vibe of it in Trust better, even though I'm not a huge fan of Trust. And also Heathers, too. Heathers would be a good example of that kind of third act. Just kind of worked for me. Heathers is a masterpiece. Heathers yeah. is one of the best movies of the 80s, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And that's even... I can say that I think it's one of the best movies of the 80s, and I probably, if I were grading it, I would probably give it like a three and a half out of five, but I just, there's something about that movie that transcends how good or bad I even think it is. You know what it is? It's the screenplay is so tight. Yeah. That screenplay is textbook. That's a good point. I mean, every beat of it is either giving you something about the character or some breather of humor or it's reversing something there's just so much content into that screenplay to bring it back to the italian guys uh i'm surprised de sica doesn't work for you that much he's all right um now that i've said that i sort of immediately regret saying it (laughs) because i really like uh leone obviously i i love exactly yeah leone and um salima and a few of the other ones bava bava was incredible he was hit or miss, but when he was hit, Mario Bava was top five all time at what he was doing. Even actually, I would say Italian film to me is summed up in the career of Lucio Fulci, who had these moments of beautiful and powerful, like raw, primal cinema. I'm thinking of stuff like the end of the Beyond or the end of um, the one Western he did where it was all in the snow, Four of the Apocalypse. He has these moments that are really stunning and so unlike anything anybody else is making and really visually driven. But then he'll have these long chunks. Sometimes it'll last for a whole movie. Sometimes it'll only be 30 to 40 minutes where it's just these meandering 
surfacey, overwrought conversations and and scenes that just don't give you anything. You didn't get better from a different scene. So that brings me into the director who I don't like with movies I like, which is Altman. I don't like Altman. I still can't believe that. That's crazy to me. But what do you like of him? Well, I but I love The Long Goodbye, and I really liked California Split. But for Altman, it's the same, It's exactly that. I feel like it's this like slice of life about people I don't give a fuck about. It's just like these conversations that sort of like they never end. Nothing ever happens. People are, are introduced, and then by the end of the three hour movie, they're the same person as the first person you met, and it drives me absolutely nuts. But then you have something like The Long Goodbye, which is this great film noir with uh you know a 20 minute um scene of him trying to feed his cat of, of elliot gould you know <laughs> hanging out with a cat and it's like the, just the best film and it just it works so well it has such a sur- it sets this serene mood uh you have this sort of little murder mystery and and he's such a weird guy that you want to know what he does you know with his cat you you want to see what happens when he's alone in a room because he's just such a uh, he's so just cool he just oozes coolness really he oozes coolness too i think yeah. he's I think he's one of the goofiest characters I've ever seen. In a great way. I love that movie and I love that character, but Oh, he's ridiculous. It's just the but... opposite of cool to me. It's this he's he's um Cohen's brothery to me, that character. Maybe that's why I like it then. Yeah. Yeah, I love character movies. And I mean that that also which is why you'd think I'd like Altman since most of his movies are about just a person doing something. <laughs> but uh I don't know. California Split I like too, and I don't know if it's just Elliot Gould you know, me liking him, but, um, and George Siegel and that, that, but what I loved about California split, which is the, it's like two gamblers, uh, going through their lives is the ending of that, uh, had an ending. There was a point to it. Whereas I feel like with Altman for the most part, it's this, again, it's like meandering pointless kind of thing that just never does it for me. He always had trouble with endings. That That's why, um, that's the big problem. Most people have with mash, including me. Is I love that movie when it's on, but there's just the ending is horrendous. Oh, it's awful. I don't see. But I then Nashville, that. Nashville is one of the best endings I've ever seen. I mean, Nashville, that ending is beautiful when they're all on stage together. It's almost it's a lot like the ending of Eight and a Half, where it's almost a curtain call. Actually, I like uh, curtain call endings. Like I like the kind of Wes Anderson curtain call ending that he puts in. You know, yeah, you got to earn them though. That's true. I like the, I think the one in Life Aquatic that just kind of stretches throughout the credits and just keeps on going. Like it's the ultimate, just like, let's just get everybody in <laughs> yeah. kind of ending. I think that one really, really worked well. So another, another movie that I like by a director that I usually don't would be School of Rock, the Richard Linklater movie. That's the only one of his movies that really works for me. Um, I think it's a great kids movie. I think it's got a good vibe for adults. I think it hits that perfect level. I never dug Slacker. I never dug the Before Sunrises. I kind of like I like parts of uh, Waking Life. I like the stuff with like Alex Jones like ranting in his car, and there are good parts in that. But none of his movies ever just completely grab me, except for that one. I just it, think it's really solid. It grabs you. How? <laughs> I, it's one of those movies where like. You know, I went and saw it because I was just in the mood for something simple. And I think it there's a lot to be said for writing one line in a movie. You know, I like movies that, you know, peaks and valleys and twists and turns and stuff. But there's something to be said for just walking that perfect tightrope of this is a perfect family film, you know? 
It doesn't have to be a family film, but just riding one tightrope can be very, very impressive. And I think that's what that movie really did perfectly. I don't love him indiscriminately, but I overall, I really like his movies. And I think his voice is interesting. And that movie makes sense to me because I think it works for the reasons that his other movies work when they work. I think it's very honest. School of Rock really feels very honest to me in the way the um, before Suntime movies feel and uh, Dazed and Confused feel. There's just sort of like a, there's not a lot of um, emotional hiding in that movie, you know? It really, it reminds me of Almost Famous, which is one of those ones that I always think I just like it out of nostalgia. And then every time I watch it again, I realize it's not only the best movie Cameron Crowe ever did, but probably the movie Cameron Crowe was building his whole career to do. There's just this sweet honesty to them that whereas something like Pirate Radio, which tried to go in the School of Rock, almost famous music nostalgia vein, that one felt so contrived and emotionally dishonest. I think something like a a music movie, I feel like you can really tell. That's a place where it really matters. Yeah, that's a good point. I I remember when I saw that movie Watchmen, um, all the use of music in that movie, it's like all, it's all very obvious. And like when you're reading the graphic novel, these songs are being referenced in the novel, like uh, all along the watchtower, they use that one. There's a, you know, like all the songs in that, they're just so fucking obvious. But when you're reading a novel, like you're not really hearing the song, you're just seeing like a snippet of lyrics, like a, at the start of a chapter. I think that's how it was handled. When you're watching the movie, it, it came so close to just feeling so obvious and terrible. But it had this tongue-in-cheek quality to the use of the music where it was like, we're rewriting America as this movie is taking place. And it was like these great little, um, you know, signposts along the way that gave you the vibe of like, this isn't really how things happened. It was um, a bizarre Forrest Gump almost. Yeah. Yes. That's a, that's a perfect description, actually. Yeah, it was like the comic book Forrest Gump, essentially. Actually, Forrest Gump is a good one because Castaway is the only Robert Zemeckis movie I like. And really? I love Castaway. I think it's beautiful. But Forrest Gump is, if I had to, if I had to find an emblem of all the decisions filmmakers make that will turn me off to their movie, Forrest Gump has them all. Aww. And um, Flight, I thought, was really cheap. The Back to the Future movies I don't like. I just don't respond to Zemeckis's sort of comfortable, emotionally middling sentiments ever. I feel like he never dives into the emotions. He's very, um, I always in my head compare him with Ron Howard because I feel like they try to make similar movies, these sort of broad swaths of American historical comedy dramas. But Ron Howard's me, I feel like he really is putting his heart into them. Zemeckis, I feel like, is just putting sort of a watchmaker's mentality into them. He's just trying to construct things, which I'm really, I have a limited interest in. But Castaway, to me, I thought it was brilliant. It was so emotionally raw, and it was so daring. I mean, to to think that movie was, to think they did that, and they put that kind of money into that. Now you see those all the time, the sort of one-man show movies, and the sort of imperiled A-lister movies. But it had been... I don't know, maybe 30 years since somebody had tried that. The last one I can think of was The Naked Prey with Cornell Wilde. And Castaway was just, it was, I don't think it missed a beat. It was so 
strong emotionally and visually and just it was tight in a way that I've never felt about a Zemeckis movie before or since. I thought that uh, Forrest Gump was, uh, it worked for Forrest Gump. I understand what you're saying. I agree with you. I, don't, I hate that sort of cheesy, fake, phony, everyone loves each other kind of stuff that wraps up perfectly with a bow. But I liked Forrest Gump because it was just, it was like a folk hero kind of story. It's like, uh, you know, him them sort of inserting this one character throughout history and weaving him. It was cute. I mean, like, it wasn't something that I cried at it was you know it had a couple of laughs kind of thing but I, I also have major complaints with his interpretation of american history though i don't like the way he treated the black panthers in that movie i don't like the way he treated the um american left in that movie or the anti-war movement there was this sort of um this reagan-y demonization this like easy demonization of um the 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 far left at the time and the Black Panthers and all these organizations and like Jenny is essentially punished for being a war protester by the movie she dies because of it. it it's just like his concept of American history I didn't like to begin with and then what he did with that broken concept I thought it just did nothing for me it felt very uh, it felt like a time life commercial for a mix CD to me you know yeah that's a that's a fair point about his harshness and I think that's what you know, I, I brought this up in a previous one, but uh, Tarantino once said to Zemeckis that he thought it was like the best dark comedy he'd seen in a while. And Zemeckis was like, thank you. Somebody who finally gets Forrest Gump. I really think it's a lot harsher and darker than people realize. Um, you know, when you see the imagery of like the feather floating and like the score and like all these, uh, like I never, I never understood the people that would think of it almost as like a feel good romp. Um, it's a really twisted film. And I think if it had come out now, it would have been even more twisted and less uh, secretive in its twistedness. You know, I, I think it would have been a little bit more overtly harsh, you know, and overtly dark in its dark humor. I thought it, it rode this line where it could be, you know, an Oscar winner. It could be like this cultural zeitgeist kind of thing for the time. Um, whereas now I think it would just be, it would turn off a lot of people. I think the approach that would be taken would be almost like a Todd Solon's kind of polarizing approach. Yeah. You couldn't make Forrest Gump now. Nobody would believe it now. It had to come out in the Clinton years pretty much. Yeah. Well, speaking of sappy and dark movies, (laughs) uh, Clint Eastwood as a director is somebody who I can't stand but uh, I, I love Play Misty for me, which is actually his first movie. But for the most part, I mean, like, I always think of Sergio Leone's um, quote about Clint Eastwood, where he said, oh, he has two acting, uh, two acting types, hat on, hat off. And that's how I feel like he is as a director, too. It's the same thing. What it's movies like, are, would you say that about, though? Um, I really hated High Plains Drifter. I hated Outlaw Josie Wales. I hated Mystic River. Whoa. I hated Gran Torino. All of his movies end with him just being the coolest guy in the room. That is not how I love Josie Wales. Outlaw Josie Wales ends with him, this battered veteran, walking up to an Indian chief saying, we have both been betrayed by the government, by every authority figure imaginable. We can stop a war right now if all we do is not fight. It's such a beautiful... Outlaw Josie Wales is, is that perfect... Watergate era rejection of of the sort of classical 
It's essentially it's the anti Dirty Harry to me. It's this. Oh, I disagree. It's this miracle, nonviolent, violent movie, which is such a and Unforgiven was the same way. Unforgiven, I think you could make a case that Unforgiven was so fucking radical in its conception of what violence is and what it means that Unforgiven is why we haven't had a Western that really believed in the myth of the Western since Unforgiven. It absolutely annihilated that fucking Sergio Leone era concept of just of the beautiful gunfight, which is something that I I like. And I think it's visually really beautiful and it's cinematic as all hell, but Unforgiven and Outlaw Josie Wales and High Plains Drifter are this sort of like late career John Fordish annihilation of, of the whole stratified, like ossified action Western thing. You know, the Young Guns thing. I, I think those those two those two movies are just so but he beautiful builds. and so smart and so and they manage to be complex and exciting at the same time. They manage to he never he never plays it safe. He never in Unforgiven. It's never like he comes out and says we should feel bad about liking these cowboy westerns. All it is is this: we have a history both in the film and out of the film, of some terrible shit and some beautiful stories about that terrible shit. And it might be time now to try to find a new model. There's so... Oh, there's light years ahead of everything else. But I feel like there are two Clint Eastwoods because I didn't get that sense at all from, say, Gran Torino or um, Mystic River. Oh, I think they're all the same movie because, like, High Plains Drifter, Outlaw Josie Wales, you have this guy who, you know... He builds a sort of like family. I'm I'm the coolest guy. I know everything, uh, and yet here he is like raping women who then pr- fall in love with him afterwards. Or you know he's like that's high playing drifter. That's not outlaw Josie Wales. He there's rape in outlaw Josie Wales too. And then for outlaw Josie Wales, I just remember it being that everyone's rallying around this one guy who doesn't seem to care for these other people unless it, it's beneficial for him personally, uh, and which is why he becomes directly involved. Which I feel like is definitely the Clint Eastwood. That's him. That's all Clint Eastwood. Like, I enjoy him in Sergio Leone movies. Like, when he's directing his own movies, half the time it's just about but that's how the he's the definition he's the king. of the Sergio Leone character that he built for Eastwood. That is the definition of the man with no name. He's not like that in Josie Wales. He starts out as that type. And by the end, he's grown into this different role where he accepts that he's part of a whole and he can't. Unforgiven is the same thing where he can't be that character. And High Plains Drifter, he's not a hero in High Plains Drifter. He is portrayed as a demon. He's a supernatural character in High Plains Drifter, and he's supposed to be an uh, avenging spirit. Yeah, that was the coolest part of that movie. (laughs) But it's not... I don't think... I think the the character you're describing is the character he's in in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and not at all the character he's in in Outlaw Josie Wales. Or High Plains Drifter or Unforgiven at all. Well, what I, I don't love, see that at all, really. What I love about um, Play Misty for me is that he's the vulnerable, vulnerable character uh, in that movie, which I thought was very interesting. And probably because it was his directorial debut. Uh, I think that he sort of tried to do something a little different from Leone and, and ter- tried to sort of distance himself, even though he is kind of the winner in the end. But you basically have Jessica Walters, uh, who's this crazy psycho stalker, and she's menacing. I think it's pretty, you know, it's it's impressive and and uh it's fun and it's a creepy movie. And and it doesn't it doesn't have that same Clint Eastwood 
all over it feeling that I think all of his other movies do. I think uh, the more recent Clint Eastwood stuff, you can find a lot more holes in. I think Mystic River, I think it's a piece of shit. I think Changeling or whatever that was called sucked. But Million Dollar Baby, sort of kind of a good movie, kind of not. And I think uh, Gran Torino, I think is fantastic i love that movie oh i think it's a racist piece of shit racist oh god so racist so white, white man's burden white man's burden here he is he has his neighbors who you know like he it's this old racist white guy and i think that a lot of people like that movie because they think oh it's just like my grandpa guess what your grandpa's racist man like this, he's a racist piece of shit all he does and then he, he he decides that it's oh it's his uh he has to go save his neighbors and he has to stand up to those colored folk and all this like I just, ugh, I hated it. I thought it was hysterical. On a practical level, though, it's about the only movie that ever made the effort of going and finding the, um, what were they? They were Hmong people? Right, exactly. Actually finding people of that ancestry and putting them in as themselves in that movie. There was absolutely zero whitewashing in it, which I think is the biggest Hollywood, the biggest problem in Hollywood now, racially, is whitewashing. And Gran Torino was one of the great cinematic arguments against it just in practical terms yeah then you got a white guy saving them yeah but it's it's hysterical that movie like it's touching towards the end too but there's so many moments that are just hysterical like when he's eating the food like at their house and he's just kind of like wandering through their little house party and like going off in the corner and like grabbing some like food and stuff just the trajectory of that scene is hysterical and i love the the barbershop stuff with like uh, him having the kid come into the barbershop over and over again. There's so many hysterical moments in that film. And uh, I wasn't prepared for any of that at all. I don't think the audience was either. And like as we sort of collectively eased into the movie, you know, it, it became like this like rip-roarious laughter fest. There's the some theater. great character beats in that movie. Yeah. I didn't, I don't, I don't love it overall. I don't think I'd ever want to go back to it, but just his control over character in that movie is really incredible. It holds up surprisingly well. I've seen it like one or two times since. I liked it a lot. The only scene that made me laugh is when he gets shot in the cross position. That yeah, was- but- <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that's what I love about that movie is that, you know, that is, that is funny and it's okay for that to be funny. And it's also okay for that to be touching too. And I think that was the great, line that that movie wrote was that it was kind of ridiculous the entire thing was ridiculous and you can either roll your eyes at the movie or you can roll your eyes with the movie i just thought it was it was very celebratory about race in a way that a lot of movies aren't it's honest too it's honest in the way that i don't think anybody of our generation would be honest in that way i think it's honest from the perspective of someone who's not particularly interested in being progressive. Right. And still finds humanity in everybody, which has always been part of the reason why I think Eastwood at his best is one of the best directors out there. I think he's a better director than he is an actor, honestly. And I think it's because he never shies away from finding both the conflict in his heart in the story he's doing and the humanity in everybody in the movie he's making, which is why Outlaw Josie Wales, in some ways, I think is his best movie because it's structurally, it's so unusual. It's so unforgiving. And then, and then so gentle at the end and unforgiven is kind of the other way around unforgiven. You have, um, no, I take it back. Unforgiven is his masterpiece. Unforgiven is 
if you if anybody listening to this has not seen Unforgiven, just drop me everything. Drop everything. <laughs> do it now. I haven't seen any of those fucking movies you guys no, are talking Unforgiven, about. Unforgiven. <laughs> Unforgiven is a stunner. I gotta step my uh, Eastwood game up. I've really only seen the the you know the the latter wave of his movies. There but, were the of the of the first group is worth watching. Yeah, I gotta check that. But out. Unforgiven has this thing where you see you're introduced to um, a man who you're told is a stone cold killer. And you're introduced to him and he's this like bumbling grandfatherly idiot on a farm who like you, you, you're introduced to him while he's trying to wrangle pigs. And you sort of, you like in the first hour, hour and a half, you come to know him as this like gruff, wise, sweet, like heart of gold, mean guy like he is in Gran Torino. And then in the last half hour, it strips all that shit away and it says no Every story you heard about this man is true. He is god awful, and it does not matter that he's cutely gruff sometimes. Unforgiven is really like it is. It's unforgiving, is what it is. It really is. It does not flinch. And the trouble westerns are easily one of my favorite genre because I think when they're at their best, they don't flinch, and when they're at their worst, they're really sort of they dance around the ethical problems with what they're doing. But Eastwood at its best in Unforgiven and Josie Wales does not dance around the ethical problems with what we're watching. I got to check those out. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with the flip side of the coin, so to speak. We're going to tackle movies that suck by directors that we generally love. So see you in a second. Last week, we had a contest where we gave away five copies of The Room, the Tommy Wiseau or Tommy Wiseau or however you pronounce it movie. At the time that this episode airs, uh, those of you who won a copy should have been contacted on Twitter. So check your little thingy on Twitter that tells you when people contact you or whatever. And you should see something from us if you want a copy. Uh, We hope to do some more contests in the future. So keep listening. And when you hear that sound, that's when the contest is happening. So always be listening for that sound when you listen to these podcasts, you know. You might win something. You might win a movie. How great is that? You love movies. That's why you listen to this thing. All right. Back to the show. And we're back. And this half of the show, we are going to talk about movies that we dislike by directors that we generally like or love. And um, right off the bat, I'm going to say Moonrise Kingdom. Moonrise Kingdom, that's the Wes Anderson that doesn't work for me. And we actually kind of talked about that already in episode four so if you want to hear us just go on about wes anderson pretty thoroughly for like an extended period of time just go back and listen to that episode we don't really need to touch on that one here that was a good one that was a good episode right guys great times episode four that was a good one uh they're all good you know let's let's put that out there we don't (laughs) want people thinking they should be missing certain episodes they're all good anyway the one i'm going to bring up for this this half is Woody Allen's film, Don't Drink the Water. And that's not the, the 60s one that he wrote and somebody else directed. This is the one that he directed uh, for TV in, I guess, the early 90s with like Maya Bialik or however you say her name and Michael J. Fox is in it. It's like a very, you know, early 90s, yay, these people cast. And that movie does not work at all there's not one second of that movie that works for me and i'm i'm the hugest woody allen fan all of his other films work perfectly for me 
that's the one where I'm like, I, it almost makes me feel like some people feel watching Woody Allen movies. Like that's the reaction it gets out of me where I'm like, finally, I understand what people mean when they say that some of his movies are grating. And so that one's just... That, what, it. what, in what way? I think it's the... Because it was made for television, you know, it's shot 4-3 and... Uh, you love 4-3. No, I'm not saying anything against 4-3, but it's shot 4-3 in that like early 90s. Uh, it just doesn't have you that... You love the early 90s. All right, let me, <laughs> let me explain. I love 4-3. I love the early 90s, but it does not work for Mr. Woody Allen. It, uh, it feels like TV in a way that just doesn't feel right for him. And it just, it's just off. That whole movie is off. If you ever want to see a Woody Allen movie that's really bad, you know, like a lot of people, you know, they'll say like, oh, Curse of the Jade Scorpion and this kind of shitty or like people always have their Woody Allen movies that they don't like. No, you, you, you will love whatever Woody Allen movie you think you don't like after you've seen Don't Drink the Water, which he did for TV. It's on DVD. You can find it for like a dollar perpetually on like Amazon.com. It's one of those ones where anybody who has a copy has it for sale used. <laughs> Every, anyone who bought that movie is trying to get rid of it. That makes me want to see it. Does the TV thing affect the pacing? I mean, does it does it move like... Because I feel like he has very delicate pacing. Yeah, it definitely affects the pacing. It's, uh, it, it's almost like they're trying to breeze through the entire film. They're trying to get it over with. You know, it's just like... And it's not quick in like a, a fun way. It's quick in like a... It almost... Fe- it, it really doesn't feel like he directed it, but I guess he did. His name's <laughs> on it as director, but it, it feels like somebody trying to approximate Woody Allen. And it, I guess it's just him trying to approximate himself for this format that he's uncomfortable with. What if it's a different, unrelated man named Woody Allen who directed it? That, that reminds me of the Garfield thing that Bill Murray ran into. The reason why oh, yeah. he did Garfield was because he thought it was... Uh, one of the Coens wrote it, and it turned out to be one letter off. It was like C-O-H-E-N. Yeah, it's Joel Cohen, C-O-H-E-N. Yeah, yeah. he wrote it. You heard about that, Jenna? No, that's that's beautiful. Yeah, he said in an interview not too long ago, he said the only reason he did the Garfield movie was because he looked at the script, front cover, saw the name Joel Cohen. was like, I don't know about a Garfield movie, but hey, I like the Cohen brothers, so I'll give it a shot. <laughs> the Garfield TV show is pretty amusing. That was pretty damn good, that, yeah. that show. That I would worked. have done it for that. Yeah, I like the U.S. Acres segments of that way better than the other ones. But, you know, this isn't 90s cartoon talk. This is... Hold on, I got I got one more 90s cartoon thing, though. <laughs> Bill Murray replaced the guy who played uh, Garfield in that cartoon series. The guy who played Garfield in that cartoon series replaced Bill Murray in the Ghostbusters series. Ah, so they little, constantly shit. keep taking each other's roles. Right? Yeah, ah, a little rivalry because he was the voice of Venkman in the in those terrible Ghostbusters cartoons. Right, and then they changed the the hair color on like one of the guys. They like changed the hair color on Egon. Yeah, they made it like white hair. Or something yeah, like. it was weird. And like I remember looking that up online trying to figure out why they did it. And I thought it was like a rights thing. I thought it was like probably like a rights to like the looks of the characters that they had to like change them somewhat. And they were like, no, it's just. We wanted them all to stand out. <laughs> it was like, oh, we might as well have a blonde character because those kind of shows, we need a blonde character, you know, a redhead, a brunette. Like, we just need these kind of characters where nobody looks too much the same. You know, it's just a, a silly studio decision. The Star Trek animated series, which incidentally is one of the great 
cartoons of all time and everybody should watch it because it's Hell so yeah. much fun i got that for uh jenna for a secret santa one year it's Damn right he so did. much fun but do you remember the one where um they're fighting these like wookie looking monsters but they're all pink i remember none of them because i have never seen it well they're fighting these um like hairy monster guys and the the monsters are all pink and the reason they're all pink was because the director of that episode was colorblind and thought he made them brown oh my god 100 <laughs> percent true story <laughs> That, Which that leads explains the question, so much about that cartoon. Right? <laughs> and it leads to the question, why would a colorblind man seek employment as the director of an animated series? <laughs> That's wonderful. So what's, what's your pick, John, for uh, a movie that you dislike by a director that you traditionally like or love? I'm picking Dracula, the 1931 one, directed by Todd Browning. Browning, he came out in the silent era and his his peak was the late 20s, mid-20s, when he was doing a lot of movies with Lon Chaney, like uh, The Unholy Three, The Unknown, and um, the famous Lost London After Midnight. So he had this run of really great, dark, silent, thriller horror movies with Lon Chaney. And then Lon Chaney died. And what happened was he really wanted to do Dracula with Lon Chaney as Dracula. Lon Chaney dies, he's still attached to the project, but he's in mourning about the death of his friend and collaborator. So he directs Dracula, and it's it's the only movie of his where there's no visual interest at all. It's it's two shots, wide shots, the lighting is all very boilerplate. It's the only one where he just does not give a fuck, and he doesn't give a fuck because he wanted to do it with, with his friend who died. So there's this, it's almost, it's sort of heartbreaking, actually. Yeah, that yeah, sounds depressing. And it was also, yeah. it was his first sound movie, and it was based on a play, and it never stops being a play. Because the, there's a moment in the film where um, Dracula changes into a wolf, and he runs across the yard. But what they do is they just show Van Helsing look out the window and say, there's a wolf running across the yard, that must be Dracula. And it, I guess it doesn't occur to them to just film a wolf running across the yard. There's a lot of these very stagey decisions in it because he just didn't put any heart into it. And then his next one after that was Freaks, which is a stunner. Just a beautiful movie. And I guess by then he had kind of he had gotten over it a little bit. But a very dark movie to its own credit. You yeah. Know? I mean, all his movies were dark. He was yeah. a very dark filmmaker. He, he really would have been a great choice for Dracula on paper if he did it right. Dracula, I think, is the only one of the universal monsters that the movie just is not any good. And it's really because of the death of Lon Chaney. Is there a version of Dracula you like? There's uh, They simultaneously, when they were doing those 30s versions of those movies, they would, on those sets at night, film foreign language versions of them. So it's kind of how a lot of films survive now. Like um, George Pabst's uh, Don Quixote movie, there's three language versions of it existing. It was like a thing they would do then because it was too hard to dub. So while they were doing Dracula at night, they had a whole set come. They had a whole crew come onto set and do Spanish language Dracula, which is very good. It's almost a half hour longer, but there's no extra scenes. It's just they play the time differently, you know. Mm. And when there's that famous scene at the beginning when Dracula meets um, what's his face on the steps of the castle, and it's all cobwebbed. There's a few shots in the Spanish version where you can see Dracula walking through cobwebs without disturbing them. And there's nothing like that in the English language version. Mm. And um, the Hammer versions, actually, in the 50s, I thought were really good. I really, overall, as a character, I'm more interested in Frankenstein. 
And as movies, I think a lot of Frankenstein movies were better than any of the Dracula ones. But Horror of Dracula from 58, 59, and the Spanish language Dracula from 31, I thought were very good. And if it counts, Vampire, the one by uh, Carl Dreyer, the, the Carl Dreyer movie, Vampire. But I'm not sure that counts. It's sort of a, it's an adaptation of a different story, but it borrows a lot from the from the film Dracula stuff. It's always interesting to me that the, all this vampire stuff has come back again, honestly. I never was a big fan of old Dracula. Frankenstein. Yeah. Why, why do you like Frankenstein more? I think it's just a more interesting story. I think the story of Frankenstein is just beautiful. This idea of essentially an orphan, you know, it's Paul Bunyan crossed with um, a feral child story. And it's a lot of it is what ended up becoming King Kong and Godzilla too. This idea of something that's just too big for earth and the last of its kind, I think is always, and it's an increasingly relevant thing because it's the story of modern man. You know, we're just laying waste and we're not even, even when we're not trying, but also the film versions of Frankenstein are amazing. The 1931 Frankenstein. I mean, that is, I would put that up as the best production design I've ever seen in a movie. That is, it's all taken from the Weimar German expressionist, um, it was when when etchings were very popular in art, these bold black and white lines. And it's all, it's crypts and graveyards and windmills and everything, but it's all done without irony because it hadn't been done before. And it looks amazing. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just this beautiful, you couldn't, you couldn't do it again because you would be, your brain would be so full of other versions of that stuff that it, it had this sort of pioneer, it was the first to do it kind of approach and then the hammer frankenstein stuff in the 50s i think is great because what hammer did was that was smart was um the the universal frankenstein movies which is frankenstein bride of frankenstein son of frankenstein and then a few other bad ones ghost and all that those first three universal so universal ones i almost said universal soldier those first three universal (laughs) universal soldier yeah we do those first three universal frankenstein movies are uh amazing and they're very much worth watching but what they do is they follow the monster the Hammer ones in the 50s, they were smart enough to try to find their own way. And they follow the story of the doctor, not the monster. So they have Horror of Frankenstein, where, uh, you know, Frankenstein runs muck, And then I think he's killed. And then the next movie is about the doctor making another one. And through the course of these five or six movies, you see this protagonist. It's, it, it's Walter White. You see this scientist who's a very smart guy whose basic structural problem in his brain is, is pride. You see this guy become the worst person on the planet over the course of the five or six movies. They're they're basically the Breaking Bad with a monster. Also worth noting is the movie Spirit of the Beehive. Yes, which uh, a Span- it's a Spanish movie about a little girl who sees Frankenstein and is kind of too young to really get it, but gets it on a. Uh, it kind of changes her outlook on everything around her, and it's her confronting death and confronting awful things happening through yeah she thinks that movie. she thinks there's a frankenstein monster running around right because she's too young to understand that movies are make-believe it's, so it's she a goes hell of hunting. a movie it's, oh it's beautiful beautiful movie it's i think it's the best spanish movie i've ever seen it's so it's up good. there i i would put it neck and neck with cria cuervos which coincidentally stars the same little girl yeah i think they're both immaculate films so, Jenna, what's your uh, choice for this topic? Uh, my choice is uh, Christopher Nolan. 
who I like in general. I'm usually excited to see what his new movies that come out. I like The Prestige. I like all Batman. I liked Memento. But I didn't like Inception. I thought Inception was just pointless, <laughs> flat. The characters were also 2D, and, and I just I didn't really get it. I, I, I think what really held the movie back is that all the suspense is based around one company just trying to beat out another company. So who really wins <laughs> in the end? It's just capitalism? Like, I don't really understand the point. Or maybe it was meant to be about, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio seeing his kids, but he was so boring, I didn't give a shit. <laughs> what about you guys? Did you like that movie? Oh, no. I, absolutely not. I remember my sister, she she adored it. She saw it, like, opening night. She was like, you gotta see this. It's so good. It's like the next Matrix. It's like the best I go see it. I'm like, oh my God, I hate this movie. It's just, none of it worked for me. It was definitely, yeah, it was trying to be that kind of matrix. I mean, it was great looking in a lot of ways. It was interesting as a concept, uh, but I just, it was so in love with itself and, and, and the idea of itself as a movie that I felt like the actual content was just so flat. And yeah, there's the so story, many good actors. The storytelling took a backseat to uh, all the cool stuff that he thought about this concept like it was like it almost felt like a trailer for selling me the concept of a movie that would then be made with like a dope story that's a nolan problem across the board i ever everybody who knows me knows that i just can't deal with christopher nolan i can't i can't can't deal with his movies and i can't deal with the effect he has on other filmmakers i do think prestige is pretty damn good though but the only one the only one i really like is memento okay and i think you can only truly hate the works of a filmmaker if you think they have it in them to be great and nolan does absolutely i mean his his casting first of all his eye for casting is unreal and his his um his camera work is great and his his um intentions are usually good his ideas are right on the money but he can't he's become an action action director who can't shoot action and he doesn't know when to do it and inception my big problem with inception was that it had this beautiful idea of this turned over city that was sort of the crux of the whole film. And how did it reveal it? It showed it to us in a training montage and then never used it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Think about how great that movie would have been if it ended with that chase gunfight, whatever, instead of in the ice palace level from Goldeneye in that <laughs> flipped over city. He pushes He pushes visual action so far, but not consistently dark knight was the same way dark knight had that great the second one that's dark knight right yeah 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 Yeah, it had that great scene where um he's in the motorcycle and they flip the truck over and i love that part but then there's another 45 minutes afterwards and it's just a series of lamer action sequences in a row right he's he's not good at knowing when to just say this is the best part of the movie so I need to move things around so that it ends after this. That cheesy part in the Dark Knight when he has like the special goggles and he's like looking into a building and stuff. Oh, it's terrible. Like, w- why is this exciting? What's it? We we saw a truck flip over like 20 minutes ago. <laughs> why are we why would we possibly be excited by Batman looking through goggles at like a building? It's like a return of the king, how it never ended. Yeah. The last Lord of the Rings. But how did nobody in all the years of pre-production and production for Inception, when they were sketching out that flipped over city, say, why don't we set the ending here? This is the best part of the movie. And we're wasting it on a five-second throwaway shot. It was a trailer shot. Exactly. It was shot for a trailer. It wasn't shot for the movie. And it worked because it brought people in to see it. 
You yeah. Know? It was a great image. Um, I think he's at that point where, you know, the the cliche of you're at this point where everybody just says yes to you and nobody really challenges your ideas. Remember when there was that whole debate about like film versus digital and like Nolan was very firmly film is the best. Film is great. It's awesome. I'm never doing digital. It's like the greatest thing. And nobody argued with him whatsoever. And I think that probably happens behind the scenes too. Like all those articles that came out like, all right, this is Nolan's thoughts on it. It was when the it was when Keanu Reeves made that like side by side movie. Yeah, which was a great documentary. Yeah, very, very good. Definitely worth checking out. But nobody argues with Nolan in it. There's like, one simple reason why they don't. He's brought in all his movies on budget. That's a very good point. That's why he'll as long as he does that, the studios will let him do whatever he wants. Because he just doesn't run over budget. He's a robot of a filmmaker. I feel like there's, he, he's got so much potential, and he showed it in Memento, and he shows it fitfully in his other movies, but he's an accountant to me, not a filmmaker. Yeah, I'd like to see him go back to a lower budget. I think that's where he would sort of shine. I think he got kind of caught up in the glitz and glamour of Batman. Like, I like the first one the best, and then the, the bigger the budget and the, and the bigger the stakes and the longer the movie, and then, it yeah, it becomes more robotic and... and Hollywood and less interesting to me because he doesn't know how to handle stakes. He 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 makes these stakes that are great on paper, but the bigger he makes his stakes, the less he knows how to express it. So his best sequence to me as an action sequence is that two person chase scene in Memento, where he forgets what he's doing in the middle and he's trying to figure out if he's chasing the other guy or if the other guy is chasing him. Mm. You know, the bigger he gets from that, the less he knows about how to express it or the less at least he's figured out about how to express it visually. Cause when you think about dark Knight, the best action scene was, it was a truck and a motorcycle. It was very linear, right? The bigger he gets it, he, he can't control it. Remember the, the big climax of the last Batman movie where it's that giant melee brawl. And it just looks like kids playing in the background of a fist fight. Right. Cause he couldn't figure out how to shoot it, to shoot it aggressively. What you what you said earlier reminded me, uh, Jenna, of Joel Schumacher. Um, what you said about getting lost in like the big movies. If you guys have ever seen Tigerland, did you see that one? Yeah, I liked it a lot. That's a really really good movie, and you wouldn't know that it was a Joel Schumacher movie whatsoever. And he did get lost in that same Batman uh, bigness for a little while, where whereas he probably should have just been churning out Tigerlands. Yeah, like that's a great little movie. All right, we're going to cut here and we're going to come back with a couple questions. See you soon. And now, a movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. I'm working on a screenplay. It's about a guy that sits in different coffee shops while writing his screenplay. But I'm working on mine at home on a typewriter. This has been a movie joke by comedian Anthony Kapfer. Visit him at anthonycapfer.com. K-A-P-F-E-R. Rick asks, give some examples of irresponsible filmmaking. Well, I wrote that whole thing about Wolf of Wall Street and how I thought that it really walked the line. Also, again, about having the director's intentions not being clear enough, uh, I thought, for the audience and for how people responded Sort of like um, Wall Street, I think, had a similar effect of you have this terrible guy who's just so charming in the movie, portrays him as a hero that a lot of people leave being like, that's the guy. I'm going to be that guy. So it almost has like a 
people miss the irony aspect do you think yeah i mean i get it it makes me uncomfortable that's like what happened with scarface kind of too yes absolutely yeah but i wouldn't i mean i wouldn't call scarface irresponsible filmmaking just terrible filmmaking (laughs) no i love i love scarface i just think that the cult of scarface you know it's kind of just it's an unintended consequence but i don't think it's the fault of the filmmaker per se i think it's very honest you know if you're living in some fucking shithole in nowhere iowa or you're living in like a projects tower in fucking queens when you watch that like why not Mm -hmm. you know the worst of it is better than (laughs) the best of what you have right that's a fair point I think my example for irresponsible filmmaking would probably be, uh, and I forget his name, his name is escaping me, but the guy who made Baraka and Samsara, I think both of those movies are extremely irresponsible. They're essentially fucking screensavers in movie form. It's not difficult to shoot beautiful things, you know, just straight on. Like if if you're going all over the globe finding the most beautiful imagery you can find, it's not difficult to just hit record and capture it. That's interesting. You know, it's really like, what are we praising? His ability to go around the world? Like, are we really praising him for his his visual prowess? Because he's just capturing things with a high, you know, I don't, I actually don't even know if he shot film on the second one. I know he did film on Baraka. Like he shot it like 70 millimeter or something. He might've done the same for Samsara. But are we really just praising a guy who has the ability to go around the, the world with 70 millimeter camera and just capture gorgeous imagery? So what's wrong with that? It's irresponsible because while he's there, he could be doing so much more, A, visually, B, as far as just like the whole project, like it it gets, those two movies get praised by like sort of the new age community. You think they're unambitious? They are unambitious. They're, They're ambitious on a very surface level. They're ambitious in that, yes, he did go around the world and shoot these things, but what does he have to show for it? A bunch of fucking screensavers that don't necessarily even flow well into each other. You know, you watch those movies, there's no real substance there. He hasn't learned anything. He's not, he's, there's no wisdom that he's giving us with these images. They're just well-shot snapshots of, you know, the entire world, essentially. I think that's irresponsible. I think you can say way more about the world than just that, than just capturing its most beautiful moments around the world. You're not really saying anything. So I think that's irresponsible. John, what do you uh, what do you think is irresponsible as far as filmmaking? The most irresponsible movie I've ever seen is also the most detestable movie I've ever seen. It's called Killers of the Sea. It's a documentary from 1937, and it's this guy who has a fishing boat. I think it's a Caribbean, and he's just cruising around the Caribbean, and there's this breathless, real newsreely type of narrator in the back who's characterizing this man as a sheriff of the ocean who's out there, I swear to God this is true, protecting the good fish from the bad fish. (laughs) So what he's doing is he's going around and he's finding dolphins and he's petting them. And then a shark will come by in its native fucking habitat and he'll leap into the water with a big knife and on film, on this documentary for children, just murder this fucking shark (laughs) and throw its carcass into the sea. Oh my God. And then he does it with an octopus at the end and the narrator the whole time is talking about how it's like this slimy, cowardly demon (laughs) haunting the sea. Meanwhile, this man is just absolutely devastating, a very fragile ecosystem. Oh, Lord. And they put it in these theaters, and it was essentially, it was an aspirational thing for these kids. They wanted to go out and be sheriffs of the sea and kill bad animals. And that, (laughs) this motherfucker, he's he's talking about these beautiful, good fish, And the reason those giant good fish don't exist anymore is because people like him sport fished all the sharks out of the ocean. 
Yeah. Peter Benchley always said that after he wrote Jaws, he would not have written that book if he knew the effect it was going to have on people because people just started killing sharks all over the place because they thought of them as enemies. Right. But you can't think of nature as having enemies. It yeah, has, good or bad. Yeah, that's it has a an morality you're, That's a morality you're imposing on it that's entirely arbitrary. That's definitely it's, irresponsible. Yeah, I it's never beyond heard of arbitrary. That. It's massively... I mean, I would love to know just the goddamn physical toll that fucking jackass wreaked on the most beautiful ocean on the planet. Just devastated it and then the movie just throws in this straight up soft shoe minstrel show racism in the middle just for the hell of it he's got a uh, there's there's a black man like an islander who's on the boat with him and it'll occasionally cut to this dude and they'll have someone overdub him with this real lispy step and fetch it voice oh my god talking about how he's just too lazy to go out into the ocean with his master and i'm watching like you i wanted to fist fight the movie I wanted to find the people who made it. I don't even care if they're now cruising around 90. I just wanted to beat the shit out of them. It was despicable filmmaking. Find it on the internet. Killers of the Sea. Dare you to make it through the whole movie. It took me three viewings to finish it. I was giving some guy shit for just jet setting. Meanwhile, this movie exists. (laughs) All right. So our next question is, Harry asks, have movie tropes always been around or are they the result of some iconic moment that sticks? And the example he gives, I guess, is in American Hustle, something about a lamp breaking and everybody walking out in, you know, the smoke of like the lamp breaking or something. I don't, I didn't see the movies. I don't know what he's talking about. I did essentially a long form research project on this called Shot Context, which was a website where I just put images from films next to each other. I started with kind of this concept that all of this stuff was created. For example, the idea of um, the the cavalry riders rising over the hill to save people. You know, the like cavalry coming over the hill to the rescue. That comes from Seven Samurai. I mean, you can point to the first time anybody ever did that. But a lot of this stuff, there's this sense that it comes from somewhere. But really what you can do is you can backtrack and backtrack and find earlier cruder examples of some of these these iconic images and these these sort of pop arty visual transmissions of of an idea that we have you know you you look at something like i saw american hustle and i don't remember that scene but i'm assuming what he's talking about is like people like badasses walking out of the smoke which is you know that idea of like people walking away from the explosion without turning around right you can point to the first couple of times anybody ever did that it's almost a Buster Keaton-y kind of vibe, right? Like that, yeah. where the house falls. And, and there's, like he, yeah, and there's a, few, there's a few horror movies from the 40s where you see something, you see a car blow up and you see somebody just walk away without turning back because they cause the explosion. But the thing about them is they get really granular and you can keep looking and see elements of them earlier and earlier, but not in their constituent whole. So really what happens is you have these ideas that are always sort of floating around and these these sort of visual grammatical symbols for complex ideas like this dude's a badass because he's walking away from fire. You know, you end up with these sort of visual shorthands for them and they're always sort of floating around. But I feel like in a lot of cases you need a flashpoint moment where somebody does it very well and then it becomes institutionalized like in literature you have you know you have a million stories going back to whatever of like troubled orphans up against the system but it really wasn't until 
the uh, the 1800s when you had a couple, you had like Jane Eyre and Oliver Twist when it was done well and it was done red, that they became, instead of just one free-form idea that people use sometimes, it became this institution. And that's when it, when it sort of calcifies into an institution like that. Well, it's like when, when genre becomes genre in general. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those moments, I think you need a flashpoint. Right. You need a you need a cause. Well, it's like when, you know, the first heavy metal bands, it's like, you know, Black Sabbath and like the new wave of British heavy metal, like all those guys, you know, that calcified into an entire genre and is very pinpointable. And it's, you know, really on a music theory level, it comes down to the the embracing of like uh, flat fifth stuff and like sort of uh, classical um, scales, so to speak. And the application of that with like distortion and you know some some of these galloping sort of rhythms that just come together and then you have this entire genre of metal that's keeping on going and has all these subgenres that grow from this this one little flashpoint moment yeah but i mean those elements existed forever it just took a, exactly it took somebody just sandwiching it together it's the same thing. I mean, punk, you can find punk songs. The Kinks were doing punk songs. The Who have a few punk songs. The know? Beatles. Helter yeah, Skelter. Yeah, and um, My Gal by The Loving Spoonful. I mean, that's a punk song from like 1963. But it really, it, it took a it took a moment in, in the 70s for it to become sort of an intention and an institution and a mode. And that's when it becomes, I hate this word trope, but that's when right. it becomes something like that. Trope isn't even the best word for it, you know. It's visual indexing is what it is, really. Yeah. It's putting a definition to an image. Yeah, and it's not looking at the history of it. Like, a lot of those trope sites, it's just cataloging. Yeah. You know, it's not... There's nobody leading you through it. That's what I loved about Shot Contacts. That's how me and John met initially, was that I was just a big fan of the site and reached out to him, and we hit it off. And um, if you guys haven't looked into the the John D'Amico deep cuts, (laughs) going. Explore shot context. Great site. Yeah, I think these tropes are really. It, it, what what would make a trope a trope would be uh, just that somebody managed to do it so well that they inspired so many other people. Because as you were saying, uh, you know, if you ask the Beatles who the the king of rock and roll is, they're going to say Buddy Holly. If you ask Buddy Holly, he's going to say, you know, and it keeps going and going it, and. That's going. a good point. Everybody has their uh, their flashpoint milestone moment that they can point to and you can just keep tracing it back and you could almost can't even find it, you know, it just traces back to like a protozoa at a certain yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think with images though, with film images, it, you need a moment where you see either a pose or a color scheme or a landscape or something. And it's, it's in the context of the film and on its own, it's done with such clear lines that you give a definition to that pose that might have existed before. Like I'm looking at your Say Anything poster in front of me, and it's the the image of Cusack holding up the stereo. And I mean, you can I'm sure you could sit there and go back and find images of people holding stuff up. Right. All throughout, you know, whatever. And right next to the, that poster is a Rocky poster with Rocky and his arms in the air, because I just had to put them next to each other because they just seemed... Like they should just go together. Yeah, and you have these two images of these two guys with their arms up, but really each of them has, because the image is so strong and so strong in our collective idea of the movies, you have each of these poses now has a definition. You know, that Rocky pose is 
that has a definition. It's not just triumph, but the triumph of an underdog. Right. And the say anything pose is now that's a romantic gesture. That's pose of a romantic gesture. When I'm sure you could go back and you could find that in protest videos. You could find that pose in, um, you know, I'm sure that's like uh, that. There are things of criminals doing that pose, just being dicks in the it street. Almost, it almost feels like hieroglyphics. Yeah. You know? Like yeah, that's a really good way guy, of looking at it. Guy with arms in the air with holding nothing means <laughs> underdog triumphing, whereas guy holding object is like a romantic. You know, like it almost has that. Whereas guy holding radio in the hieroglyphics means question mark. Well, that's essentially <laughs> means, how. means aliens, basically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's essentially how hieroglyphics formed, though. It was you would draw these things out to show them. And then over time, you'd keep drawing the same thing to keep meaning the same thing. Yeah. And then it would sort of mutate and you would end up with these non-representational glyphs that like kind of look like a thing, but really are the same with Japanese and Chinese characters, you know, like the, they started out as pictures of houses and then they just became these sweeps and these Picasso lines. And it's, I mean, it's the same thing with film. We have, you can see every video game now has the same cover of the fucking jacked idiot walking right. away from the camera with a big <laughs> gun on his back. And at a certain point that meant very specific kinds of heroes you know and now it just means any fucking idiot who's in a goddamn video game and it's fonts. it's fonts yeah too. yeah fonts are a perfect example where certain fonts mean something like the impact font didn't mean uh humor meme until very very recently and now suddenly it's this this funny thing that you expect on like captions on like images of like cats and stuff that impact font with like the black border and also Comic Sans. Yeah, I was going to say. Comic Sans now just means like over silliness, <laughs> you know, just not knowing what font to use kind of thing. And Helvetica somehow has gone from being an institutional authoritarian font to now this sort of like folksy homemade one because everybody's sort of reclaimed it. Yeah, this coolness of that font. And Cooper font would be a good example. The, uh, the classic... Uh, 70s like wet hot american summer like titles fonts and like louis used it for some stuff too that was a font of like you know taking little stamps and like making shirts kind of thing you know that was like the uh like the bullshit shirt and like the jerk that the the kid wears like that's a cooper font like it has that kind of 70s early 80s vibe where like if you use it you're recalling that whether you want to or not you like you you almost can't use it Except in that context, just like Comic Sans, you can't use it seriously. You have to be sort of winking if you're using it. You know, it's a good example of all this. I've been rewatching the Rambo movies. And um, you remember that shot? Everybody knows that shot. In Rambo 2, where he's shirtless and he has the M60 and he's just spraying the bullets. And it's, I mean, he looks like an action figure. He's shiny and he's on a desert. The shininess is perfect. Yeah, yeah, there's these very clear lines. Almost plastic, yeah. Yeah, and he's cut against this green helicopter and plain sand desert. It's very bold colors. That same shot is in Rambo 1 in First Blood. He, there's, a, there's another shot of him spraying the windows of the police station with an M60, but he's hiding in the shadows... He's wearing all black. And in that film, it's a signal of he's almost the Viet Cong in that film. Right. It's this guerrilla warfare reversal, preemptive reversal of that sort of like action god, war god image it became in Rambo 2. There's this John Ford movie from the 30s with Boris Karloff where they do the same pose. In that one, it's it just happens. 
it it really doesn't feel like it has any um meaning beyond any other way of standing and wearing firing a gun that anybody has it doesn't it's not really charged yeah they don't they're not paying attention to what they have with it uh how iconic it could be it's just something to use right I don't even know that it's not paying attention to how iconic it could be. It's just their priorities are not for the kind of iconography that Rambo 2 prioritized. Right. So you have something like that. It's it's almost like how Michelangelo said he could find only one sculpture in every slab of marble. It's almost like this. You get these sort of gestures and these images, and they're really only good for one thing. And it takes a long time for filmmakers to figure out what the one thing could be. That was a good fucking question. Holy shit. Yeah, that was a good one. <laughs> that could have been an episode. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, be sure to subscribe, rate, comment, do all that. That really helps on iTunes. John D'Amico's taking off his uh, headphones that he hates. He hates those headphones. Absolutely can't stand them. He, he's got something against headphones. Me and Jenna like headphones, right? Yeah, I'm down. Yeah, headphones are great. But our boy John doesn't like wearing them when he's doing the episode. No, not for me. Yeah. See, now you're talking all low. <laughs> when you had the headphones on, everybody could hear you clearly. All right, guys. Uh, keep uh, keep listening. Keep going back. Check out some episodes you might have missed. You know, support the show. Any any parting words, Jenna? Just remember that just because John and Cody and I fight, it doesn't mean that we don't love each other <laughs> and that we don't love you. Yes, mom, mommy and daddy and daddy love each other very much. <laughs> They just uh, sometimes disagree, and that's okay. And they'll still be here, you know, and that's all right. Any parting words, John? I got nothing. Have a good week, everybody. <laughs> no movies to recommend? Not like one one that you can stick in? Yeah, First Blood. Watch Rambo 1 again. Yeah, it's a great movie. And Real good movie. My parting words, uh, hmm, I guess that I love you all equally. Every single one of you. More than Jenna does. That's right. Goodbye, guys. 